Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembered that the spitting images political answer box cassette of novelty answering machine messages gave you the choice of having your phone answered by Neil Kinnock or by Neil Kinnock and Roy Hattersley. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is podcaster Al Kennedy. Al, what you ought to work, we find it. I am a podcaster who does a few different bits and pieces around the place. In terms of my current output, it is mostly House to Astonish, which is a comics podcast which has been running since 2008 and I believe is Scotland's oldest comics podcast, or certainly it's oldest continually running comics podcast. And the other main thing that I do is a show called Desert Island Discworld, which is effectively half book group half biographical interview where I ask guests what Terry Pratchett book they would take with them if they were to be cast away to a desert island. Okay, well, I'm hoping that they don't get stranded on the desert island because of the characters involved in your first choice, which I'm just going to get this out of the way from the beginning of the show. This, amazingly, is one of the few things I've actually managed to find a clip for. Okay, theme tune there that if you're a certain age and if you're of a certain disposition will be burnt into your memory. Al, what was the high life? The high life was a, it was a very short run show on BBC starring Alan Cumming and Forbes Masson, who actually wrote the show as well. And it was a sitcom about the lives of a couple of absolute chancer flight stewards and their completely divorced from reality escapades trying to win Eurovision for Scotland or getting involved in a weird parody of Batman 1966, a biscuits and shortbread. It was completely ridiculous, high camp. And it spun out of it's one of the shows that came out of the Comic Asides project in sort of 92 or 92, 93, I think it will have been. It only ran six episodes, but it gave the world a few incredible things. One is that amazing theme tune. Two is the catchphrases like, oh, dearie me. You know, I was 14 at the time it was on. These were things that were absolutely the Argo of our classrooms for months afterwards. I mean, the thing only ran six episodes, and yet it effectively transformed the way that we annoyed our teachers. Yeah, I remember how absolutely massive it was. All of a sudden, just overnight, people were going around saying, oh, dearie me, I'm not going to do the accents at any point. Don't you worry about <laughs> that. Anything very jingsy or hootsish or crivensy, I'm happy to do. Well, the thing was that they played with that brilliantly because... I can point to a friend of mine who's actually from Paisley, but has been basically exiled up north since university. Right. He loved the fact that they talk, you know, these very arcane regional details, like the Stovies in the episode that you mentioned, and made them into a big shareable joke. It wasn't mocking. It was almost like self-mocking in a way. Yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of think, if anybody else was doing this, it would seem mean-spirited. But because it's 
you know, it's that Scottish production. It's all Scottish actors, you know, apart from Alan Cumming and Forrest Mass and Siobhan Redmond was like their foil. She was like the Walter the Softy to their Dennis and Nasher, effectively. And Patrick Reichardt, Patrick was the captain of the plane who seemed to be on some other planet most of the time. But because it had that as its you know, show genetics, as it were. It was perfectly fine for them to be basically just mocking all the daft wee stuff that we do in Scotland. And even just things like calling the airline Air Scotia, which is the kind of thing we do all the time, the shortbread tin kind of branding of Scotland. Its slogan was, Denny Fash Yourself, Day It Offy Well, which, again, I would not be surprised to have that kind of thing coming out of, a, you know, a focus group somewhere in Edinburgh. But also things like, you know, there's a bit in one of the episodes where Forbes Masson's character is trying to impress a girl who he used to go with to school with I mean he hasn't seen since primary school and she's turned up on the plane like carrying bagpipes and this is to signify that she's really really Scottish so he decides he's going to try to impress her by doing amongst other things making a full haggis in the back galley of the airplane and you know so Alan Cumming comes in and is like what is all this and it's like oh it's sheep's heart and testicles and oats and stomach lining that I'm just going to put all this in and make it a haggis and it's just like of course of course you didn't know she was on the plane until a minute ago but you definitely have got all the stuff to make a haggis just sitting around the plane absolutely (laughs) love it and we really do need to just go back for a second to those opening titles, because as well as that song, there's a whole choreographed song and dance routine using the kind of traditional Stuart movements and accoutrements. Yeah. <laughs> well, they've all got the life jackets and the, you're the pointing in the different directions. And all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's choreographed like a Busby Berkeley routine. It's amazing stuff although it has got one phenomenal i don't know if you'd even call it a blooper because they certainly kept it in for the entire run of the show which is that towards the end they were supposed to go down on one knee put their right arm up as if it was like you know, a plane taking off and then like put their other hand up to their eyes as if to say well you know, i'm watching this fly off Unfortunately, Alan Cumming had been appearing in Sam Mendes' cabaret, playing the MC, and so Alan Cumming gets down on one knee, puts his right hand up in the air, and puts his fingers up in front of his top lip as a Hitler moustache, and he just does a full Nazi salute in the opening credits. You know, this is something which he has copped to, and he did say, I was just so used to doing it every night at Donbass that the time it came round to doing it for the high life, I just couldn't get the choreography out of my head. Actually, Alan Cumming's character in this I think is more in a way sort of significant and important than I suppose people really give it credit for because his character who is called Sebastian Flight Flight as in planes not how it's spelt in Pratt every visited it's interesting that it's not like television wasn't treating gay characters sympathetically by that point but they tended to be you know that sensitive mould mm-hmm. sort of post effeminacy thing Sebastian Flight is kind of aggressively camp almost to the point of straightness in a kind of in-your-face what-you're-going-to-do-about-it way. The fact he is gay is just like getting up and walking around to him. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. haunt him in any way. And there's a brilliant bit where they're staying overnight in a whatever Air Steward equivalent of a travel lodge is. Mm-hmm. And around his bed, he's got thousands of like signed photos of Richard and Judy and so on. <laughs> he's hugging a Joe 90 action figure. 
and looks like the happiest man in the world. Really, for that time, that was quite a radical piece of characterization, really. I think it was, and particularly given that at that time still there were, you know, really damaging media stereotypes of gay men as predators which was something, you know, obviously that would change over the the next decade or so after that. But the fact that in the show, there is one sexual predator and it is not his character. It is Forbes Masson's character, Steve, who is just completely sex obsessed and continually is getting effectively squirted on the nose with a water bottle and so on by Sebastian. That is... I think a really helpful way of kind of saying, well, look, you've got a, you get two characters, two male characters. One of them is going to be you know, the Randy one, effectively. Although he was so ineffectual that it would be like having like a Randy guinea pig or something like that. And the one that is not at all is a character, which again they never really made anything of the fact that he was gay. But they, as you say, they littered the show with indicators that Sebastian was gay and Steve was his straight pal, and there was nothing really made of that it was just he got to be a camp funny and also like unpleasant as well he got to be a mean guy he got to be a vengeful guy like they were so petty the two of them because they were always getting their schemes foiled by sean redmond's character shona and so the two of them would just be like mean but for that to be something that came out of their almost panto like even more than that like their bino kind of tendencies than anything to do with the characters orientations or anything like that was brilliant it's just they're such good characters and i think that they operate at a total remove from reality helps as well and apparently it's frustrating it's so difficult to find although people talk about this double act they have victor and barry really reverentially there's very little of it out there, but they've been doing mm-hmm. it since about 1983 or four. I think they've talked, Gosh. they've done the fringe with it. They had a show on Radio Scotland as them, which again, there's very little of that in circulation. That ultimately led to their characters in the high life. And that's possibly the reason why they've said that they were offered the second series. But by then, Alan Cummings' career was really starting to take off. Mm-hmm. And they both independently expressed to each other, I don't want to do the high life and have these characters that we've lived with and loved for so long just fall short of expectations because we haven't got the time to work mm. on it properly because you're so busy. And I think that was the right decision, really, because it was from so. the heart rather than from the head. Yeah, I mean, Forbes last night said that they did write a second series. You know, they did draft a second series, at least. But because, as you say, you know, Alan Cummings' film career was taking off. I mean, Forrest Masson, it's not like Forrest Masson was wanting for work or anything like that. He's been a playwright and so on for years. But the fact that there isn't a follow-up, it kind of makes what there is a bit more special, perhaps. I mean, it's like the fact there's only six police squads. You know, would that have been something that they could have kept up for two, three, four series? I'm not sure. The fact that there are these six little perfect daft nuggets Things like the Eurovision song in the fifth episode, the Piff Paff Puff. Anybody who saw that episode could probably sing you that whole song. And it predicts the Father Ted one. It does. What's the thing? I think I'm a huge Divine Comedy fan. Absolute massive Divine Comedy fan. I still think Piff Paff Puff is funnier 
than My Lovely Horse. You know, Divine Comedy is one. It's a great song and it is daft as it needs to be, but it's not particularly Eurovision-y, whereas all the kind of bang, shang-a-lang, bang-a-boom kind of things that you actually get, in, well, you actually did get at the time in Eurovision, makes the, the High Life one, I think, much funnier. I mean, that's not even the only song that they put in one of the episodes. They do one where they go to film a training video for the crew. They sing a song about Air Scotia that is... It's very catchy, and you're watching, you're watching, like, this is quite catchy. And then they sing it again, and they bring up the lyrics with a little bouncing ball on the screen. It's just like, ah, they have anticipated my need here. Well, you did mention that the pilot was originally part of Comic Asides on BBC Two. And famously, there was that first series of Comic Asides in 1989, where nearly everything went to a series. You know, there was KYTV, mm-hmm. I Love It, Morning Sarge, of course. But there was this weird run of it a couple of years later, which just split across a couple of years, actually. Can you remember any of the other shows from it? Was there one that was basically a precursor to the fast show that had was it simon day are you thinking of it? it's a mad world 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 i can't remember which was, it was kind of a tv version of radio fours and now in color there was also pulp video which is an attempt at rebooting naked video with a younger cast all right they must have called it pulp video because of quentin tarantino which is a bit embarrassing really that's really how do you do fellow kids <laughs> There was N7, which is a Nick Revel thing about a depressed writer. Woodcock, which is a sort of weird pirate-themed thing, and Frank Skinner was in that, and I remember very little about that. But also, kind of on a similar theme, do you remember Mac? No, what was this? Mac, nobody remembers this. It was a one-off pilot based on McGlasham from Absolutely. Oh, the right. sort of fiercely passionate Scottish nationalist character. Yeah. And they made a pilot which was really good where, you know, because the Absolutely sketches are about how ridiculous McGlasham was with his rejection of anything English. Yeah. And this put him in the real world where, you know, he met real people and he became romantically interested in a woman and he had to sort of temper, you know, his genuine beliefs around interacting with other people, you know, because he moved to this new area. And it was really good, but it's just disappeared. It wasn't on the Absolutely box set. And it's kind of occupying, in some ways, similar comic territory to The High Life. Yeah, I mean, The High Life's pilot is a weird one, because if you ever try to get hold of the DVD of The High Life, it's got the comic size pilot on it. And they basically slightly rewrote and completely reshot that pilot for, I think it's episode three or four of the series itself. But at least that's something which you can track down and actually watch but if there's absolutely related material out there that's not freely available then that's that's a crime okay well i'm wondering if we could find quite as much to say about your next choice i didn't know about these from the time i sort of half couldn't believe they existed and half thought it's inevitable they existed and amazingly i've managed to find an advert <laughs> the fun of flip siders the games that look like cassettes but they're a whole lot more flip siders new from milton bradley okay you'll probably have gathered from that that we're talking about flip siders it's not as if they didn't say that enough al what were they (laughs) well you know how there was the short-lived cereal banana bubbles cereal that thinks it's a milkshake flip siders was basically the board game that thinks it's a cassette tape if you're going on holiday as a kid then the kind of thing you were always stuck in the back of the car with was some kind of travel version of a game. So, you know, your travel Cluedo or your travel <laughs> Connect 4 or whatever. 
the one I always thought was a, a missed opportunity was Travel Twister, which would just have been like a series of coloured circles that you stick on your hands and feet and then you just try and <laughs> tangle yourself up back seat of the car. The thing that these all had in common was that they were very portable little games and they were relatively cheap and if you lost bits it didn't really matter because you aren't going to play them after you've been on holiday. And into this kind of world came this thing Flipsiders which I thought they were a really short run faddy thing. Looking them up they ran for five years and there were like 20 of them. They were basically plastic cassette tapes or at least things that looked like cassette tapes but they were the dimensions of an actual cassette and tucked away inside them there was a fold-out metal board which had you know whatever picture or design on it for whatever the game was that you were going to be playing it had a little spinner in the middle a little switch that you could flick which would spin the two the reels so that it would bring up numbers or hit or no hit or colors or whatever again depending what the game was and it had a little flap at the top of the cassette which had space for very very tiny and extremely losable pieces and the point of it was that you would effectively kind of, with a flick of the wrist, you would shunk out the board, put it down, set it all up. There you go. Two seconds, you're ready to go playing a board game. Now, the difficulty that these things have is you can't make 20 decent board games that are about three inches by about five inches. It's not really doable. <laughs> and so some of them were just absolutely bonkers complicated there was one that was i think it was like a kind of a a dating thing and it was like sort of you know those kind of mystery phone games that was were all the rage in the 80s the sort of dream phone and all that kind of thing they were supposed to be like oh it's board games for girls where you can see if a bloke who looks like one of let loose wants to yes, want to date this with was you. called prom date and they did a few of kind of girls can play these two variants because of a slumber party more madness and prized pony as well yeah prom date was ridiculously complicated like there was three separate tracks for pieces to move along there was your own path there was the path of the guy the path of date and the path of the heart and then you got to the end of it if you had managed to move to the end of the date to get to the telephone you would just spin the spinner and see if the guy would call and if he matched the right color then great he asked you to the prom and you win if not like nothing else you did in the game has any effect on whether or not the guy asks you to the prom it literally is just you spin the spinner and if it's got the same color as the space that you're on then you win ridiculously over-engineered game that had actually very little underneath it. But then the one you were saying about the Slumber Party one is literally, I think it's the description that I found online was like, you hit your opponents enough times to put them to sleep and you're trying to stave off sleep. I'm like, is this Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> But I remember my brother and I each had one of these. I think it would have been from the sort of original run. I definitely had, there was one called Scavenger's Gold, which was sort of a yellow cassette tape where, I mean, it didn't have an enormous amount of gameplay to it. You basically had two players. One was the pirates who were trying to scavenge gold from around the map. And the other is like the Queen's Navy or whatever that are trying to catch the scavengers. It's basically just a kind of cat and mouse game and you need to try to get into position to achieve your objective. But there's, again, not an awful lot beyond that to it. I mean, no one's expecting that it's going to be Twilight Imperium or anything like that. You know, you're not going to be sitting playing Flipsiders for eight hours in a session. You know, no one's come up with the idea of Flipsiders legacy yet. But the fact that they had so many of them and that they had to come up with different vague concepts, at least, 
for each of them. Meant that you got things like there's one where you were a rock band flying around the world trying to get to dates on your tour. It's like, ah, what every child dreams of. It doesn't quite fit in with the prize pony one and the a pirate scavenging gold. It's like, oh, are we going to make it as to Duluth tonight or what? Well, my main problem with them is that, you no, know, previously on here, Mitch Ben talked about pocketeers, which are kind of, in a way, a similar concept, although they were completely enclosed. But they were just, they were games. The whole point was, here's a game, it goes in your pocket. This mm-hmm. is a ridiculous manifestation of that 80s idea that, you know, trans Transformers is the most emblematic thing of it, that things had to turn into something else. And it wasn't just children's toys, you know, the sophisticated office accoutrements that did that as well, that turned from one thing into another thing. It led to things like rock lords and so on, which are toys that turned into rocks. But why did these need to resemble a cassette tape? Surely the novelty of that. And, you know, there were Transformers that turned into cassette tapes as well. I could bang on for hours about the Transformers that turned into cassette tapes. Don't get me started on that. I think part of it is just... Just that as a kid, you like something that's a bit novel, really. You kind of go, oh, oh, dad, look, look. Do you think I've got a tape here? Do you think I've got a tape? Ah, <laughs> oh, it's a game. <laughs> Fooled you, Dad, you idiot. The thing is, how many fathers must have played along with that? Like, you know when they used to give out those ridiculously unrealistic plastic chocolate digestives with whizzer and chips or something? <laughs> and every dad in the world, bless them, would say, ooh, I think I'll have a chocolate biscuit. Oh, no. <laughs> Fooled again. So I suspect they possibly, possibly didn't think you were asking this boss on kick by an accent. Exactly. Exactly. One thing that really surprised me was I thought these would be, you know, when you got toy sensations like this, it was like only from Bingaco or something. Well, it's obviously (laughs) only from them because I've never heard them. These were actually MB Games, Milton Bradley. So they were a huge, high profile thing. And as you say, they did last for a couple of years, but. There's almost nothing about them online. There's a couple of not very good photographs and forums where people say, I remember them, and that's it. Now, I mean, I found a list of 20 of them on Board Game Geek, which tends to be the best place. The first year of it, there were six, and then there was a whole bunch the year after. And then bizarrely enough, in 1990, two years after that, they brought out one. I don't know what was going on there, that they had one flip side or that they wanted to bring out two years after they brought out the last lot. And then two years later, they brought out a further six, and that seems to have been the end of it. I was going to say, do you think they could reboot them as CDs now? But it'd have to be like a Spotify playlist. (laughs) (laughs) I don't quite know how that would work. Yeah. Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which I'm hoping you didn't accidentally try to load in a game for a flip tiders cassette on this. Sam Coupe. Al, I don't know what this was. In 1989, there was the big kind of flush of 16-bit computers and consoles that were really, they were the in thing. They were the future of home gaming, effectively. And machines like the C64 and the Spectrum and so on, they were looking a little bit like they were going to come to the end of their run in the next couple of years, which indeed was the case. But there were some people who were not quite ready to let that go. 
And so this company called Miles Gordon Technology launched a thing called the Sam Coupe. And it was called the Sam Coupe because from side on, it looked a bit like a sports car because it had these little feet that sat out to the side and it was angled up like a convertible car with the top down. I mean, it was just another home computer, but it came in what I could only describe as like hospital equipment white. You know, that kind of white that goes yellow very quickly. It had a decent leg up over the other 8-bit computers at the time, but the difficulty it had was it was an 8-bit computer in a world that was very much moving away from 8-bit computers. And the fact that it was designed to be backwards compatible with the Spectrum, which meant that it had, and I'm not even kidding about this, a built-in thing that would slow down its own processing so that you could play Spectrum games on it. Yeah, it had four modes effectively, and one of them was essentially a Spectrum emulator because part of what they were selling it on was you want to get a new computer... Computers aren't cheap. You have spent the last five years buying games, so you're specky. You don't want to throw all them away. You can still play those on your Sam Coupe. This was technically true, but it did mean that the, the machine had to basically put on a dunce cap to do it. Even the brightest spectrum, you know, your plus twos and so on, your plus two A's, had, you know, 128K of memory. And after not very long, the Sam Coupe as standard was 512 so you know it was four times as powerful as the best spectrum but it was designed to be backwards compatible all the way down to 48k spectrum and so it got this reputation quite quickly as being sort of the super spectrum which really hobbled it because at that time if you're not getting a 16-bit machine to go and play games on the sam coupe was as powerful as an atari st effectively but it really suffered from what I can only call dweeby marketing, effectively. It was pushed as being like a retro game emulator for the Spectrum. And nobody really wanted a retro game emulator for the Spectrum. Spectrums were pretty hardy. If you wanted to keep playing your Spectrum, you could probably just keep playing your Spectrum. The games that were available for the Sam Coupe were not exactly a huge list of barnstormers. They did eventually get things like you know, Street Fighter and stuff like that, but not till quite some time later. Well, there's an issue with the whole thing about it being spectrum back compatible because 1989 there's a very weird backstory here about miles gordon technology who as you say made the sam coupe was actually formed by i couldn't believe this alan miles and bruce gordon sadly not ian miles and ian gordon i was just hoping it was <laughs> who had been at sinclair during the heyday of the spectrum and they left when the partial sellout of shares to alan sugar came about by that point the Sinclair brand was already tainted by the QL, which is his business machine, and the mm. C5. And after that, the relaunch Spectrums. It's interesting. They gave the public what they wanted. You know, the built-in tape recorder, the better keyboard, the better functionality. But somehow it just wasn't the Spectrum. And so the brands have been diminished a little bit by then. Other computers, like you say, like the Atari ST and the Commodore Amiga were on their way in. The Spectrum was kind of... Things 
world's revolving past it, really. And they chose this moment <laughs> to try and bump it up a little bit. And apparently, although the computer itself remained on sale into the early 90s and new games, as I say, were being developed for it into the early 90s, the business was wound down in 1990. Not really? long, apparently. I, I mean, citation that. needed, but I found that in a couple <laughs> of places online. That's only a couple of months after the launch, really. And the other thing was... In terms of back compatibility, apparently speed loading games for the Spectrum, you know, the copy protected loading tone ones like Daily Thompson's The Catlin, yeah. didn't work yeah. on this. Unless you want to play Gobble a Ghost all the time and nothing <laughs> after that, then you're a bit sunk, really. Yeah. For the Sam Cooper, they did have big games of the time. Like, they did have Prince of Persia on there, for example. They did have Lemmings on there and, and so on. But at the same time, it attached its wagon to the wrong star, effectively. You know, it, it was an eight bit machine in a 16-bit world and while they were going to get obviously positive coverage from Spectrum Press you know there was no way you were going to get your Sam Coupe versus Sam Coupe user it did kind of just turn into like your Sinclair or whatever would have here's all the stuff about Sinclair Spectrum stuff for this month and here's four pages at the back that are effectively paid advertorial for what's on the Sam Coupe this month the answer was generally very little although it's one of these machines that has kept a really strong programming community around it to the extent that if you go to samcoupe.com it is a fan site which sells accessories for the Sam Coupe and indeed offer services of building you a Sam Coupe from scratch and has a thriving Sam Coupe fan element to it. Well that's one of the few things I did find out looking online is, as you say, it's still very popular and it seems to be a very easily customisable computer as well, which a mm. lot from that era aren't really, unless you want to destroy yeah. them completely. I don't know whether that was intentional on their part or not, but it certainly seems to be the one major thing that's kept, as you say, this community going. Yeah, I think that their intention was that you could get your Sam Coupe to do anything you wanted. And the way they went about that was they had a truly herculean number of output ports on the back of the machine so you could attach you know disk drives or mice or screen grabbing software stuff or anything like that you could do whatever you wanted to with it it was quite modular but it never got past those first couple of years of actually catching on with the public that it would have needed to become a viable bit of consumer electronics just as a closing note on this do you know what sam stood for oh it was something this is like dvd where they changed it's something more respectable later i think it's it was originally like some amazing machine some or amazing something like micro that was... it's a whole lost world amazing micro. Phrase, isn't it? it's a bit yeah. like something children's itv's video and chips <laughs> okay we're going to your next choice now and if you thought the sam coupe had kind of fallen off the edge of the cultural radar you wait till you hear what little we could find to do with this and in fact you'll notice there's not even a clip of this itself and scottish hell consists of a portrait of ali mcleod a frightening tartan drummer girl and a giant computer scoreboard flashing up what Scotland's goal difference is and why it means we'll go out after the first round. And to one side is a man behind a desk and that man says to me, Armando Yunucci, you've elected to go for Paul Coyers Hill Challenge. This for 10 bonus points. Which Scottish hill has the most sides? A question I know I can never answer, so I'm condemned to watching a thousand-part documentary about the life of John Logie Baird. 
a Scotsman who invented television, but didn't realise we wouldn't be allowed to watch the ruddy thing. OK, that was Armando Iannucci from his fantastic Except for Viewers in Scotland routine, talking about the golden cagoule. That's all that's out there of this. Al, <laughs> do you remember any more than just the name? OK, Muriel Grey right, is one of these people who, if you are Scottish and of a certain vintage, you remember her never being off the telly. Muriel Grey presented the Monroe Show, which was a you'll get you outdoors climbing hills kind of thing, because you know, in Scotland, any hill above a certain height is classed as a Monroe, and there are a number of organisations that are dedicated to what they call Monroe bagging, which is going out and you know being able to kind of take them off in your ice by book and say, I've climbed this thing. And Muriel Gray had this show based around this for quite a while, actually, on BBC. And for some reason, the BBC, in their infinite wisdom, decided that what this needed was a spin-off show that was a panel quiz show about Scotland, where the prize was a golden cagoule. The name of the show was The Golden Cagoule. The prize was The Golden Cagoule. The theme tune went, The Golden Cagoule, The Golden Cagoule. You wear it to work, you wear it to school, and so on. It was awful. Like, it was exactly the kind of thing that the high life liked to poke fun at. This kind of very, very cheap, and just, it was just rubbish as a panel show at all. Like, there was one round where they had to, like, read out the words to Loch Lomond, or something like that, I seem to remember, and there was nothing to it beyond that. It was literally just like, let's have Donnie Monroe from Runrig reciting these words, and it was absolutely it it looked so cheap it looked so tacky everyone involved seems to have absolutely sworn off it and promised to never talk about it again and it was a show that my family never missed we literally never missed an episode of it we would sit and watch the golden cagoule every single week and I do not know why. Well, one thing that, I mean, I have, when I say I've got more to say about it, I've got more to say about how little I've been able to find out about it. But <laughs> one thing that really struck me from, you know, what little I could read about it was, I think a lot of what Vic Reeves did early on was based on bad or dull or boring or misguided television that he'd seen. The big one that I think is Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, in so many mm-hmm. ways, is clearly modelled on. Are you aware of Bruce Forsyth's Big Night? Where mm-hmm. it was, you know, when he was at his absolute height of fame in the 70s with right. the Generation game. And obviously, yeah. that was the big Saturday night show. As always happens, ITV waved a lot of money under his nose. And they basically said, well, you're going to do all the Saturday night for us. It's called Bruce Forsyth's Big Night. And it was almost like, genuinely, like they just put him in front of a camera and expected things to happen. And, you know, he, he come on, they do it. Oh, doing the song and dance. And then Cannon and Ball would come on or something. And then there'd be a game show like the Pyramid game would come into it but there was no running time it was just Bruce doing everything and then things happened around him it didn't last very long and famously they show on things every so often where he has a Q&A with the audience and somebody says what do you think about the poor reception to the show and he goes into like an almost 10 minute rant about it makes a lot of fair points about the press and how you get criticised if you try something different you get criticised if you do exactly the same thing mm. the best bit of that is he kind of blames the audience and says 
people thought glitter was going to come out of the set. You know, that, <laughs> you feel for him, but he's trying to defend something that Clive James once said. There was no format. It was just a long show. It was just a big night. But yeah. so much of that is so similar to Vic Breeze's Big Night Out. But I think he had seen the Golden Cagoule and it partially inspired shooting stars. I think that is probably right because it had a very similar kind of vibe, except obviously shooting stars was very aware of the ridiculousness. I kind of think seeing what Muriel Gray has said about it on Twitter, I think she also thought the Golden Cagoule was completely ridiculous and was effectively a daft bit of mucking about. I don't think they thought that they were creating the new university challenge, but the calibre of the actual show itself really, I think, let down the people who were involved. Because Muriel Gray is, you know, a long-time Scottish broadcaster. You know, she's got a lot of hits under her belt. She's a lot of work to her name. And I'm pretty sure that when Muriel Gray goes on Desert Island Discs, they're not going to go and have the presenter of the Golden Cagoule. Well, that's a very significant thing, is I think, particularly in the 80s, nobody really knew what to do with Muriel Gray. Because, you know, there she is. She's this incredibly intelligent, perceptive, media-savvy woman, which is a problem for television at that time, at that point. Mm -hmm. Also, she doesn't look conventional. She's got that very kind of 80s before yeah, she does, the, the fringe look. So Yeah, very spiky dyed hair. My yeah. memory is that she'd do all these like really intellectual programs to present the design awards and things like that. But you'd also see her presenting schools television. She presented a Channel 4 youth show called Bliss, which I remember not really working because, let's be honest, she was a lot cleverer than the programme and a lot of the guests were. I think that was the main <laughs> problem there. And also, this is completely forgotten, she was never a full-time Radio 1 DJ, but she used to stand in for people like John Peel, Janice Long and Jonathan Ross on holiday cover. Uh -huh. And so it was almost like there were people within the broadcasting industry thinking, we can't let somebody this smart and unconventional loose on the public. We've got to rein her in a bit, give her more conventional work to do. And maybe this was kind of part and parcel of that as well. Don't you go around being too clever, Missy. Here's a, here's a terrible quiz to put you in your place. The difficulty for that, though, I mean, like, it was made by Gallaspism, which is Muriel Gray's own production Okay, company. well, that, there goes my so... theory, then. <laughs> but the most fascinating thing I found out about it is, first of all, I need to check with you. Is this the internet winding me up? Or were the team captains Jimmy McGregor, the folk singer, and Donnie Monroe from Rumbig? Is that true? Yes. This is absolutely true. Now, this was absolutely yes. the peak time of, I appreciate Rumrig are regional legends. I appreciate they got this very yeah. long career. But if you were anywhere else in the UK, you'd never heard them. But there's this relentless kind of, oh, you know Rumrig. Oh, do you love them campaign? <laughs> like, I don't even know who they are. I remember finally hearing <laughs> them on the top 40 on Radio 1 in about 1994 and thinking, oh, right, OK. But there was that weird kind of pushing of Rumrig, which I've never quite understood. But the other thing, is on UK game shows which is you now a really exhaustive site about basically every game show that's ever been on TV and radio the bit where they say the information we have for this program is uncertain or incomplete if you've any other information to add to this entry please send it to us using the feedback form below thank you it's longer than the sum total of any detail I've got about the golden cool <laughs> Um, it's unfortunate, but it is not at all unexpected. It's a bit like that bit at the end of Series 2 of Star Trek Discovery, where they literally all just go into a room with Starfleet High Command and say, see all the stuff that happened this series, which completely contradicts canon. Let's never talk about it again. And they all go, OK. OK, well, we're really making a proper own backs here, because your next choice 
voice is something I think is mentioned on one site on the entire internet. In the absence of anything resembling a sound clip, I did find somebody playing with one, but it's just a noise, and I'm not including that. <laughs> it's something with a vaguely similar name. Okay, from 1995, that's an advert for the very first Internet Explorer. I think it only made it to version 11 Internet Explorer. So, Al, what was Explorer 12? Explorer 12. I remember the kind of toys that you used to get in the 80s that were adjacent to what, as kids, we would think of as the real toys. So, like, the, the toys that had proper adverts on telly and cartoon shows about them and so on. There was always, like, the toys that were just, like, one step over from that where your gran would get them for you. And you go, thanks, that's... You like robots? Yeah, that's definitely a robot. Yeah, thank you very much. And Explorer 12 kind of falls into that category. They were motorised sort of 16-wheeler vehicles. And they came in different sort of pastel colours. There was like the polar one and the terrain one and the space one and the ocean one. And they were like turquoise and light orange and things like that. They were just motorised space vehicles that would crawl all over stuff. And you could swap them all around. You could change the bits between one and the other. And there was a base that was like the kind of the big play set for them. The big thing about them was that they were exclusive to British home stores, a shop chain that's not even around anymore. And it wasn't really known for toys, I must say. It was no. where your grandparents would go to get a colander or something. Yeah, well, apparently there was all kinds of like spin-off stuff for them in relation to like school bags and pyjamas and jumpers and so on and I kind of think that was probably what BHS had their eye on as being where they would make the money it would be on the merch but I think they needed to realize that in order to sell merch you need to have a popular thing first and they did not really have a popular thing they had a motorized like caterpillar looking thing that had little tiny little figures that looked like little diaclone guys that would sit in the vehicles but there was no like great story behind it or anything like that there was certainly no media presence for it the fact that you could only get them in bhs was not perhaps the great attractor that they thought it would have been. It came and went in about a year. But I do remember my gran getting me and my brother one of these each and us being like, well, we'll certainly play with these. Thank you very much. These are not Transformers. Well, I think one of the reasons that, well, there were many, many reasons why Explorer 12 didn't take off. But one of them is they kept making this mistake with new toy lines in the 80s, where they'd obviously seen Transformers were big, Masters of the Universe, Thundercats, everything like that, and thought, okay, all you need is a range of figures. Like, there was actually mm. a range of Dungeons and Dragons figures that, you know, I don't know who they were aimed at. But the thing was, you know, all those big market-leading brands, before they were even launched, had a story and mythology behind them. You know, yeah. like characters written into that mythology that wouldn't appear in the line until further down the line, that people mm -hmm. still remember now. I routinely argue with people about, wasn't it retconned to Skeletor was related to He-Man, but originally he fell through from the dimension of the skeleton people? <laughs> and that's remained with me. But things like this 
they just sort of rolled out and thought, oh, kids will make up those. Like, didn't, you know, Britons who do the scale models of battleships and so on, they did sort of space line, didn't they? Where it was just, here is some spacemen and like a space <laughs> tower. There was nothing to latch on to, to sort of fire imagination. And people went on and on about, oh, these toys that, are, you know, they've got cartoons that just glorified adverts. Well, yeah, they were entertaining. Yeah, that's why they made them. He-Man's a great example of this because when they were making the He-Man toys, they were originally designed them to compete against Star Wars and G.I. Joe, effectively. And there was no story behind He-Man and the creators went into a meeting with distributors and they were like, well, what's going to get these kids to buy these things? You know, Transformers has got a cartoon. At which point, one of the creators was like, oh, yeah, did we not mention the cartoon? Yeah, like, <laughs> 52 half hours. And <laughs> the other guy's kicking him under the table. And, so, and then we came out of that meeting and we had to go and get a cartoon. But even with that, like, as you say, it was the mythology. That there wasn't a figure of Orko from He-Man for ages. No. Like, the first about two years of the He-Man toy line, there was no Orko figure. And it was only because of, legitimately, it was like consumer pressure people wanted an Orko toy that he turned up slightly later in the line. And don't forget, they managed to somehow do the same figure three or four times. Because you, know, you had He-Man, you had Prince Adam, mm. who was He-Man with a mm-hmm. nice jacket on. You had Faker, who was Skeletor's robot replica of He-Man that turned out blue. There was like yeah. battle action one where sort of battle damage rolled round on his chest. There were all kinds of variants, but it never felt like money for old rope in the way, say, destroyed Cassandra from the Doctor Who figures <laughs> did. Which is just a Cassandra just framed nothing in the middle it felt because of that backstory you could imagine a kid getting faker who already had he-man and thinking brilliant I can set them off against each other and you probably won't get faker because I imagine being sold off really cheaply really quickly There are rumours out there that Explorer 12 was originally, basically, it was a toy that, you know, you used to get those not really unbranded toys, but you'd only see them in places like when you're on holiday, those sort of shops that sell fishing nets and so on, would have a small selection of toys. <laughs> they also had action jacks, those kind of plastic sort of soldier figures that always leaned about three degrees to the left, no matter how carefully you positioned them. And apparently it was just a 16-wheeler toy that was made by one of these small sign companies, the BHS just bought it and tried to build a range around it but as we said with no mythology apart from some patches you could sew onto your bag and i do wonder if anyone actually did that on that sort of line i remember one year i somehow got a toy that was an action figure of a, a man i think he had blonde hair and green skin and i remember that his name was combo looking at the back of the box of it i remember there were literally probably 30 or 40 figures in this range and it was like an it was basically a knockoff he-man and i have never been able to find a shred of evidence of its existence anywhere but i know for a fact that i got given one apparently there was a girl's model of explorer 12 as well and really? it wasn't pink it was just at a female pilot that's really interesting because it's not like the pilots were particularly well detailed like i don't know how they were able to distinguish between those and the male pilots did they just pay her less Okay, well, speaking of sort of semi-knockoffs in the slipstream of something far more successful, moving on to your next choice now. And again, absolutely nothing I could use for a clip here, so get a load of this. And then we had another drink before we sat to eat. The liquor was so old and strong, I quickly fell asleep. Ah, uh, come on, men. Play that modern Spun with Peter 
Sellers playing the ukulele and making silly voices over the top of it because <laughs> that's the nearest thing I could find to Steel Eye the Lost Magic. Al, I didn't know about this. You've described it to me and I can barely believe it existed. Yeah, it was effectively like in the wake of the kind of media hype around Kit Williams Masquerade where, you know, you got a book and the book had a puzzle. And if you solved the puzzle, then you could win and find an amazing thing. Ladybird Books did this book, Steel Eye and the Lost Magic, in 1987. And it was effectively a kind of choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. And the, the whole point of it was, if you solved the puzzles in the book and worked out what the correct answer was to the question at the end of the book and wrote in and told them, then you and your family could win a holiday to Disney World. Now, there was absolutely no more information given than this. Length of the holiday, anything, no. You got £300 spending money. That's the only thing I've been able to find out. (laughs) But it was not like a kind of game book in the way that other successful game books at that time were. It wasn't like fighting fantasy. It wasn't like Lone Wolf. It didn't have a game in it. There was no game system. There was no bit where you would have to roll dice to determine your strength and your luck and you know, drop a pencil onto a page full of numbers to randomly generate a number, which I, I love as Lone Wolf's way of generating numbers. It was literally just a choose-your-own-adventure. There was only one ending to the whole thing. So you could not lose. You could, at one point, get a load of horrible white worms dropped on you, which I remember because the illustration for that was really manky. But when you think, well, by the end of this, I must have been one of infinity people who have read this book and got the answer. And it must just basically be like a prize raffle. And the answer to that is no, because there was only one ending, but there were five different paths through the book to get to that ending, which would give you five different answers. So even you could go through the book totally doing everything correctly as far as you were concerned. You know, nothing bad happening that was, you know, lasted more than a paragraph. You would get a message at the end that you shout to Steel Eye and he'll fly off and solve. Because this is the other thing as well. You had to tell Steel Eye how he was to solve the problem that was like sweeping this ancient world. But you didn't see the problem getting solved. You just, the book ends with Steel Eye flying off to solve the problem. And you just left there like, all right. I'll go and see when the buses are then, I guess. But you could be, you know, you'd be there saying, Steel Eye, the arrogant bear has the lore of the spell or something like that. And that would be a valid choice. And yet it could be, you know, the wise ruby dragon keeps the ancient lore or whatever. It could be any combination of these bits that you would build up throughout the book, like you were putting a Nando's order together and end up with a phrase which made English sense, but might not be the answer they were looking for, which is cheap, I think, really. I think what you want is to actually have the puzzles be slightly harder because all the puzzles in the book were very much entry level cryptic crossword stuff. So you would have things like if you had to figure out a particular jewel, for example, then you would get clues that were things like rip shape to pieces for something you'll treasure. And the anagram being sapphire because it's rip shape to pieces, for example. In part, gold encloses the secret. And the answer is golden, that kind of thing. So this was the level of the puzzles that were in there. But because you could go down any one of various routes at any point in the game, 
there were vast numbers of combinations that were possible of the thing to shout to steel eye at the end like looking back at this now and having entered this competition as a child and not won a holiday to disney world i can think of something i'd like to shout to steel eye i don't think it would be the competition well i did notice again there's very little about this online somebody has scanned an advert for it from eagle it is notable that in the advert, the Disney characters are larger than any illustration for the book is. So the pun, <laughs> they really were punting it on that basis. The other thing I wondered was, it was devised by Jason Kingsley. Is that the same Jason Kingsley from Rebellion Developments, the legendary game company? I it bet it fit was. fit time-wise for just before Rebellion was established. That it might have been yeah. you know, a kind of jobbing thing for someone who was already working in that area. So I couldn't find anything to corroborate that theory, but I imagine it probably is i wouldn't be surprised at all because it's the kind of thing that you could imagine somebody getting the start with but i mean the big selling point of it being the prize giveaway thing kind of means that as long as you get something that gets you to that end point you're not really selling the book on the quality of the book you know so it can be someone who is either just starting out or is wanting to take on something that'll take them a couple of weeks to put together a very basic you know i think it was like 117 numbered paragraphs so it wasn't you know a particularly long fusion or adventure it was a ladybird book it was dimensions of the ladybird line so it was a thin hardback so i can yeah i can see that that's the kind of thing you would take on and go right i'm gonna get a small check for this and job's done what i really don't get though is i'm not convinced that the kind of kids that would have liked this sort of thing would have been that interesting going to walt disney world because <laughs> it is that fascinating thing from you get dungeons and dragons really starts in earnest in the late 70s and it's very much an adult pursuit mm-hmm. when they say adult you know i mean late yeah. teens yeah, but yeah. you know the thing about the scare stories about younger kids playing it and hallucinating orcs for weeks afterwards that were always on BBC regional <laughs> news and so on it was a kind of moral panic thing for a while slowly over the 80s incrementally the age drops and it goes towards you start to get things like well the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon Nightmare mm-hmm. Choose Your yeah. Own Adventure fighting fantasy kind of scaled down to a younger readership eventually and it ends up at the stage where I mean it's, it's a mainstream thing but I still think the kids who like things like this weren't sort of an ad man's vision of the average everyday 12 year old the kind of kids were if you went into HMV to buy a record in like the late 80s or early 90s it would be very difficult to navigate there because there were two big sort of distractions blocking the whole store. One would be the bank of video screens hanging from the ceiling where something like the Young Ones was on it or one of those police stop videos. There'd be a huge <laughs> crowd of like 19, 20-something blokes just standing up staring at it occasionally going, ha 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 in unison. And the other one was <laughs> in the kind of gaming area as in video games, if there was a new thing in this sword and sorcery fantasy genre, there will be a group of like 12-year-olds in shell suits standing about three feet away from it in a huge crowd, just marvelling at this box that they couldn't afford, as though somehow they might be able to play it by proxy by staring at it in a group. That's not conducive with whoever was going in there begging their parents to buy them The Little Mermaid on video. I don't think there's yeah. much crossover between the two, so I don't quite understand who this was aimed at. No, me neither, to be honest with you. I think it's a bit of an odd one. I have to say that as a kid, we had a lot of Ladybird books because they were felt to be, you know, improving. We also had a lot of kind of fantasy stuff. Like we were big Nightmare fans in our house. And a lot of the appeal of Steel Iron Lost Magic for me anyway, was not anything to do with the fact that you could win a holiday. It was the fact that there were so many, like every page had a 
gorgeous painted illustration on it. And they were all so weird. As I say, there was that one which is literally just a painting of a bazillion horrible little scabby white worm things with little lamprey mouths tumbling down onto your character, which was just creeped me out so much when I was seven. But also just gorgeous bits of art that could have appeared in Dungeons & Dragons material or game books or anything like that. So it had a couple of things in its favour. I've just quickly looked up Jason Kingsley's involvement, whether or not this was actually him. Can't prove it or anything, but the other people that were involved in creating Steel Eye and Lost Magic, one was a chap called Roger Hurt who did loads of game books and puzzle books and stuff. And apparently someone called Joan Collins. So she obviously had a quiet day as well. Okay, moving on to your last choice now. Where again, I mean, I'm amazed that even I couldn't find a clip for this, but I couldn't. So here's something at least halfway related. Call control. Code red. Nick. Nope. Okay, from that cliffhanger in Avengers Infinity War, that's Captain Marvel's call sign, but we're not summoning Carol Danvers, or Monica Rambeau, or Kamala Khan, or even Wendy Lawson. Al, who was Janice Fell? Janice Fell, well, Janice Fell is Captain Marvel, of course, as everybody, every Marvel fan knows. Janice Fell's series ran for 60 issues over two volumes in the early 2000s, and nobody mentions him <laughs> now. Janice Fell is the son of the original Captain Marvel. And he first cropped up in a Silver Surfer annual as a character called Legacy. And he looked so 90s. He had, in the 90s, there was a period where Marvel superheroes characters all got big coats, big leather jackets. So he had one like that. It looked like they were all going skiing. Yeah, they were angling for a movie with Brad Pitt, weren't they? I'm fairly confident of that. Yeah, he had a mullet and a ponytail. He was kind of like the no-good son of the original Captain Marvel and his whole thing was can I possibly live up to my father's legacy and the answer generally was no because he was an absolute dropout so he kind of bopped around in various bits of cosmic marvel for a couple of years until eventually they put out I think it only ran seven issues a series called Captain Marvel starring Janice Vell as a character that was trying to claim for himself the name Captain Marvel and that character effectively just disappeared for ages and then in 1999 i think it was a series called avengers forever came out and avengers forever was was a 12 issue mini which was by brilliant writer kurt busiek and fantastically talented penciler carlos pacheco and as part of this there was a group of avengers that were gathered from across the span of time and you had two members of the team who had never been avengers and one was songbird from the thunderbolts which was also written by kurt busiek at the time and you could tell that that it was the kind of path that some of the characters in that series might end up on and the other was 
Captain Marvel. But it was not Captain Marvel that was you know, Marvel that people knew, and it wasn't Captain Marvel that was Monica Rambeau. It was this guy, Janice Vell, who at some point in the future apparently got his act together and became a member of the Avengers. And spinning out of that series, they launched this book that ran 35 issues, got cancelled at that point, relaunched, ran another 25 issues. And it was a kind of buddy comedy effectively because they replicated the original Captain Marvel setup of Captain Marvel and Rick Jones when Captain Marvel would bang his wristbands together he would swap places with Rick Jones and vice versa when Rick would then bang the bands together Captain Marvel would come back and I think that's kind of where they seem to be heading off the basis of the end of the Ms. Marvel TV show I think they may be heading in that direction with Ms. Marvel's bangle so they had the two of them as this kind of bickering couple who did not want to be bonded to each other really wound each other up constantly found each other to be desperately immature and at the same time needed each other in order to survive and the character then after his own series got cancelled went on to be a member of the Thunderbolts for a while and eventually was killed off in an issue of Thunderbolts by Fabian Nisieva who was the same writer who wrote the original seven issue Genesville Captain Marvel mini in the 90s and the character just disappeared they have literally just brought the character back within the last about two or three months as part of the kind of extended cast of the captain marvel series currently running the carol danvers one but there was a period of literally about 15 years where it was just completely forgotten that there had been this other captain marvel who had had a really long running series well i wonder if something about it has always struck me that most people involved with it thought hang on this be the big mistake and we've lumbered ourselves with this character because it seems to me he was created because the original Marvel Captain Marvel who if people are only familiar with the films was Annette Benning's character in Captain Marvel essentially mm-hmm. was a character that they'd always resisted bringing back they wanted him back without having him back so they brought his son in who's more or less exactly the same but they just seem to like treat him as a bit of an inconvenience throughout I mean first of all as you say just replicating the whole Rick Jones link almost the letter there's a bit where you know he's kind of told well you're not allowed to call yourself Captain Marvel okay I'll be photon then and Monica Rambeau says, hey, I use that sometimes. And you mentioned it being killed off of the Thunderbolts. It's actually more like Baron Zemo says, oh no, what a shame. I'll have to put him in the Dark Force dimension. It's almost like Zemo's had enough of him. It just seems to be a character that was maybe created in a well-intentioned misconceived way that they then didn't know what to do with at all. Yeah, I think that it stems from somebody within Marvel going, wait, we have trademark to use the name Captain Marvel. Oh, but we can't let it be a woman. And the problem with the 70s Captain Marvel is that the most interesting thing that character ever did was die. The death of Captain Marvel graphic novel is far and away the best comic in which that character has ever appeared. If you read the other issues back from the, the 70s, they are so tedious. The character of Marvel has got all the personality of a damp Rivita crisp bread. He is not the kind of character that if you brought them back today, there is actually fondness for the character. There's fondness for the story. 
And so when you get the opportunity to, to have another go at that concept, but have the character be a bit more of an interesting screw up, then I can see why they did that. But they really fumbled the ball on it a couple of times before they got round to just saying like, let's just do the original 1970s Captain Marvel stuff with Rick Jones, but let's have, instead of it's this paragon of virtue, let's have him just be this bickering, petty idiot who is a superhero essentially in spite of himself. And that worked. It worked really, really well for that sort of 60 issue run where it was this kind of odd couple kind of thing. But the character is, I mean, I see why they wrote him out. Like the character is ridiculously powerful, but you know, they make it work with character. So I don't know what the reticence is to do stories about Jen as well. Well, there are those characters that fall by the wayside, and there's some that have been very underused. You know, I can't understand why Jack of Hearts hasn't been used a lot. Well, I mean, I appreciate we're getting a little bit kind of comic books technical for some people now, but to bring it <laughs> into the, you know, what people are familiar with into Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's interesting that some of those characters that are often overlooked for good reason haven't really shown up in a world where, you know, they will use people like one of the identities of Nighthawk is just given to a random character in All Hail the King which is the yeah. Iron Man 3 spin-off with Trevor Slattery in I Am Groot they've brought Alf as in Alf the TV puppet who had his own Marvel comic <laughs> into continuity <laughs> through that and yet I will be surprised if Jenis Fell turns up in the Marvels it's not impossible but there are other characters like that I mean who would you say are your favourite sort of hastily dropped and subsequently ignored characters well this is really my world in comics is the characters that nobody cares about my favourite superheroes are a team called the New Warriors who they were going to have a Marvel TV show apparently the pilot was brilliant it was really funny it was gonna be a sitcom and it got cancelled because somebody higher up got nervous because they thought it was a bit too woke and a bit too like lgbt friendly and so on it's well, like given that half this the is characters the... in the new warriors are lgbt and the, you know, i know also got squirrel girl who is basically kimmy schmidt with superpowers how exactly. could it not be woke in verticals i know it's ridiculous but i was i've been looking forward to seeing that but it's not happening now unfortunately but yes yeah, so there's them and then there's Jack of Hearts is getting he's getting a bit of play now he's actually in the new She-Hulk comic the one that I always remember was there was a three issue mini must be 20 years ago now called the Craptacular B-Sides which was three superheroes with rubbish powers who like stole an old Fantasticar and formed a super team in Raven's Perch New Jersey and you know there was one guy who could cause entropy to speed up and there's one guy who could step sideways out into the time stream not do anything there but then just step back later on so he was able to avoid being punched or whatever and then there was one called fate ball who had a magic fate ball which was like just a magic eight ball that could tell any number of questions which i think is like how would you throw that brilliant concept away on a three issue series that at the time was apparently marvel's lowest ever selling comic ridiculous there is the argument that they were obviously underselling it as a joke but they ended up actually underselling it because yes. the whole thing reminds me of the how to play badminton strip in the fist of fun book it's just got that same kind of vibe about it very much the whole thing is so low stakes like one of their big battles is against a guy who's a scroll who's trying to microwave a couple of cats in a roadside diner and that's their battle you know and it turns out that there's some cree at the scene and they have to avoid setting off a second cree scroll war these sorts of low 
low stakes daft adventure things are the kinds of things that i think marvel does really well like it does silly low stakes stuff brilliantly i think part of that is because the marvel universe has got such a massive fluctuation of power levels for its characters you know you've got a kind of cat to marvel at one end and like a daredevil at the other or whatever that you can have just the rubbish like the blue collar superheroes who just go out and do the day job and don't get any of the press i love that kind of thing these are the kind of characters that i very much take to my heart not for nothing i did go out a couple of weeks ago and buy an action figure of marvel's sleepwalker a character that was described i think apocryphally but someone did suggest that it had been said by the editor-in-chief of marvel at the time as sandman done right well you see you say this is kind of your big area of interest and enthusiasm but i've got one really serious question for you which is it can't be long before they start dipping into marvel uk stuff and they do oh, yeah. captain britain and death's head and so on now part of marvel uk's continuity was the bros comic it didn't just <laughs> exist they were actually part of that world with all the newspapers and supporting characters and so on so when they do captain britain do you want to see bros in there but solving murder mysteries like in the strip and like they always did on their records yeah i would like to see luke goss playing both luke goss from the marvel universe version of bros and also luke goss as a jobbing hollywood actor playing a n other random character he can be jack of hearts <laughs> <Why> not <laughs> no response to that Al it's been brilliant thank you thank you very much Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington the story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox comedy sound effects show tunes folk singing soap stars the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and more albums of Burton that you ever knew it was possible to exist more details timworthington.org